I'm thrilled to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to be looking at together Exodus 25 verse 1 down through 20, chapter 27 verse 19. Now we're going to have to summarize some major sections of this, but I am so thrilled to open this portion of God's Word. I'm going to read here in a moment just chapter 25 verses 20 through 22. Pray for God's mercy as we study His perfect and precious Word together and invite you to stand for the reading of God's perfect and precious Word. Exodus chapter 25, beginning of verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, Almighty with a kingdom that knows no end, we bow before You today and pray that Your Word would come alive in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to see. Help us to hear. And most importantly, Lord, help us to treasure what we find out about You and what we see about how we ought to respond. Oh Lord, may we leave here never being the same again because we have met with You. We pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. As we think about where we are in the book of Exodus, we can tell the story by pointing to three particular places and three particular events. We can point to a burning bush. We can point toward a mountain, Mount Sinai, called the Mountain of God. And then today, this morning, a tabernacle. I'll remind you that the the book of Exodus is this... this, um, pictorial history that is designed to help us to see certain things that we may learn and know about God and how He interacts with people. When you you hear, when you read about, when you think about these events, they they are to grab you. They are to imprint things upon your mind that hopefully can't be shaken loose from there. A burning bush. Mount Sinai with thundering and darkness and rumblings and a voice. And today a tabernacle. What do those three things have in common in the book of Exodus? They're all events that the place is significant significant because of God's presence. The book of Exodus... teaches us so powerfully that God is relentless to display His presence among His people. 
We are people who all crave presence. All of us. That's the way we are made. We're made in the image of a triune God. We are not made just simply to live our lives in, in solitude, but we all crave a sense of presence, the presence of others. And we all tend to respect anyone who is just simply there. There are some people who are just always going to be there no matter what. And at times what we're thankful for is not that they always know the right thing to say, not because they're just there, and we need people to be there. I teach my children that when they're making decisions in their life, you can get advice from all kinds of people. But the people's advice you ought to take most seriously are those people who are going to be there down the road no matter what. I say, listen, if you rob a bank, I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to visit you in prison. I will be there no matter what. There are people like that in your life. And those are the people that you should listen to. This issue of presence is so important for us. All of this has progressed in three sections of Exodus. First of all, the people's desire to get out of Egypt. And so the whole first section is about the slavery that they're in and the redemption that God gives them by parting the sea, walling up the waters, and allowing them to cross over to the other side. And then we spend a good deal of time on the mountain, the Mount of God. And so all that is being said there is being said from the mount. And we are reminded of the law and the covenant. We're reminded of what God gives the people to establish and cultivate relationship with them, which is both law that points them to His character, but also shows them their need, and the covenant. The covenant, what only He could do for them. But now it's to the tabernacle. And the the watchword here would be worship and presence. And that's where we are the rest of the book. Now, if we're really honest, we often stop reading Exodus after Mount Sinai. After the Ten Commandments. After all, all of these tedious instructions on how to put this wood up and where and the loops and the colors and the curtains and the design and the furniture... Chapter after chapter, walking us through all of that. But I want to remind you of something really important today. That in the unfolding story of Exodus, the tabernacle is not the anticlimax, it's the climax. The reason the people were delivered. The water was walled up. The reason they went on the other side. The reason God fosters relationship with them through the giving of the Ten Commandments and most importantly through the covenant is that they would gather with Him and worship with Him. That they would know His presence. That it would be more real to them. When we get to the tabernacle, we're getting to the high point, not the low point. Now part of the problem is when we hear tabernacle or portable tent it doesn't exactly resonate i'm not a camper i took judy camping one time and she said never again <laughs> didn't put the tent up very well the weather was not great uh, when we get away together i like the 
lifestyle to go up, not down. So I prefer a bathroom. And I prefer nice towels. So tent doesn't exactly resonate with us. Tent is something that that doesn't speak to, oh, this is about a tent. Man, let me dig in. A tabernacle. But we have to understand that we are not in the same place as the people who are hearing this. This is a nomadic people. This is a traveling people from one place to another. They are headed somewhere. And so what you need to know today is that when they hear tent, they think home. That changes everything. When they hear tent, they think home. Bernd Poitras, one particular scholar at Westminster Seminary said, God's tent had rooms, a yard, and a fireplace, like many of their own. It was a home, a dwelling place. But it was the home of God. Yahweh, I am the Lord. The Lord had moved in among this people. Yahweh had come down to Moses in the burning bush. The Lord, the great I Am, had come down to the people on Mount Sinai. But now, now He moves in among the people. Now He is the fixture dwelling with the people. Now He lives in the neighborhood. Now He takes up residence and there He is. We would be helped by this if we translated John 1.14 in a much more literal way and didn't try to give it an English equivalent because it would sound like this. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, this connection between the tabernacle and Jesus who came and tabernacled among us is one the New Testament is saying, don't miss it, this is the whole point. So what we think about here in this context of this tabernacle has much to teach us about Jesus. The one who came and fulfilled all of this for us. So let's... Let's consider what God's tabernacle has to teach us about the one to whom it pointed, who tabernacled among us. Now, much of our, you know, there's so many details and so many who wants to dig into all, much of that actually reveals something not wrong with the text, but wrong with us. We want quick faith, quick religion. Give me the facts about God. Give me the bullet points about God. I want faith in as little time as possible. And I can work it in. When in reality, if we meditated on all that God goes out of His way to say about how this tabernacle has to exactly be built we end up with a better relationship with the one who tabernacled among us. There is no such thing as quick and easy Christian religion. 
doesn't exist. First of all, look with me at chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. I want you to to see the offering and what it tells us about sovereign providence. Sovereign just means absolute rule and authority above all. Providence is the outworking of things. God has the ability, because He has absolute rule and authority, to work out things according to His plan and purposes. Now, He can do that supernaturally, we call that miracle, but He can do that also without supernatural, that is providence. So this offering is going to teach us something about the sovereign providence of God. Look with me beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel as they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. Now, see, it's a voluntary offering. It's a free will offering here. You shall receive the contribution for me. And then we get the materials to be used in verses 3 through 7. And this contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, Blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, and acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for the setting, and for the epod, and for the breast piece. Now, that is an expensive haul of materials. The people are called to give it. There is a question that arises here that we often don't deal with, but we need to deal with. Where did all that stuff come from? How do they get it to give it? Look at verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary, meaning a holy place, a devoted place, a sacred residence. Let them make me a sanctuary, here it is, that I may dwell, that I may reside that I may tabernacle in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now notice here, it talks about a pattern. Uh, The word pattern here is used for something that exists. We're going to find out throughout Hebrews 8 and 9, if we were to spend time looking there, that that's exactly what's going on. That Hebrews 8 and 9 calls the building of this tabernacle a copy. A shadow, a copy of a reality to come, a heavenly reality. A shadow of what will be fulfilled ultimately. That's what he calls it. We're supposed to see those connections. God's residence among this people is to teach us about something to come. And notice how exact God is. Why the exactness? Because we want to say the right things here, so we'll draw the right conclusions about what is to come. This is the purpose and pattern. But how did the people get all this stuff? It's expensive. Some of it is somewhat ornate. Well, there's there's one possibility. Maybe they, they got out of bondage in the wilderness, and they're at Mount Sinai, and now they're walking through the desert, and they just keep finding the stuff. Probably not very likely, huh? I think I found $20 one time. I never found... Piles and piles of expensive wood or curtains. Probably, probably not very likely. They didn't just find it in the wilderness. Uh, another possibility would be that they accumulated it in Egypt. Well, that's not very likely. They were slaves. 
They were treated harshly. They were neglected. And so if they didn't get it in Egypt and they also didn't find it just simply lying around in the wilderness, how did they get it? There's only one explanation, and it's embedded in the story of them getting out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 36 says this, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. God promised not only would they get out of bondage in Egypt, not only would the Egyptians just simply let them go at one point, but they would also want them to leave and they would give them goods. Do you see what we've got here? They, they, they gather all these goods. They don't even know why. They're just simply good, expensive goods. You're going to need these for the future. The Egyptians themselves gave the, 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 the materials that would ultimately build the tabernacle. Amen. Thank you. I mean, it, it should boggle your mind that, that God can work like this. To see these things in Scripture are to, to move you. And as you think about your own life, you think about it through the lens of a God who does things like this. The Egyptians gave the materials to build the tabernacle and they didn't even know they were doing it. And the, the people definitely, once they had it, had to not hoard it and to give it. And, and, and they did exactly that. But this is sweet, sovereign providence. You see, all of these little ironies built into the text about how God providentially works out His purposes are all pointing to the event in Acts 2, 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up on the cross according to the plan of God. And then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So did they do a good thing by putting Jesus on the cross? They did a bad thing. They were lawless. And yet, in the sweet, sovereign providence of God, God is accomplishing His purposes. Verse 24 of Acts 2, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. So the very act of wicked men with wicked hands doing a lawless deed and hanging Jesus on a cross, God uses for the salvation of His people. At the very least, if you name the name of Christ, doesn't that mean when you look at these circumstances in your life and you immediately deem them, oh, this is terrible, nothing good can come out of this, that there ought to be quick repentance for saying such a thing? From a God who can cause the Egyptians who hate His people at that time, to be people who build the tabernacle, his sacred residence, from a God who can use wicked men trying to kill the sinless Son of God to accomplish his purposes, probably we should never say nothing good can come out of this. Now, 
the specific instructions about the starting of this process. Now, if you were to just pull out and say, what are the words most used in this whole section we're looking at? The first one would be make. You have to make all kinds of stuff. The second one would be holy. They making stuff that is going to be in a holy setting. The third one would be gold. There's going to be a lot of gold in this setting. And the fourth one would be tent. So here's what they're doing. First of all, the ark, which teaches us about the holy presence. Look with me at verses 10 through 22. First of all, let me ask the question, why start with a piece of furniture? If you're building this complex, why do you start with a piece of furniture? Because it's the most important part of this tabernacle, this ark of the covenant, or this box that contains the covenant that will be covered with what's called a mercy seat. That is the meeting place. And so you start there. When we built this facility, you know, you have to make all of these decisions. What do we prioritize? What do we scrimp on? What we said was this. This is where we start because this is uniquely what we do together, gather for worship. So this is where we start. And then we go out from there. We don't scrimp in here because this is uniquely what we do. Look with me beginning in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. A cubit and a half its height. It's about three feet nine inches long and two feet three inches wide and high. Just a box. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you should overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and then, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Here it is. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. Meaning never. Well, why is that? Because if you didn't have the poles, then you have to touch the ark, and there's a guy named uh, Uzzah who's going to find out that you do that and you die. This represents the very dwelling place of God, the very presence of God. Now, don't see this as God keeping the people away. It's the opposite. God is making a way for people to be able to come to Him. But coming to God always involves recognizing His holiness. We are made in His image, but we are not Him. And in our sinful condition, in His perfect essence, we cannot take it. Elsewhere, it's going to say you cannot see God and live. So in this moment of redemptive history, as God is calling a people to Himself, He's making a way for them to be able to come to Him. This is not about keeping people out. This is about inviting people in. Now, we live in a different place of redemptive history, and we have to account for God's holiness, but we do so in a different way, a way of fulfillment that is a better place. 
But whatever we say at every moment in redemptive history, the holiness of God has to be taken seriously. Look with me beginning in verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. This is the stone tablets. This is the words of the covenant written on them. Verse 17. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, these these angels of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end, one cherub on the other end. Of one of the pieces with the mercy seat shall you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony, that is the covenant, the, 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 the stone tablets. I shall give you, here it is, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, you may have gotten sort of lost in all of that, but you didn't get lost in this. There are two things that keep coming up again and again in the the explanation here. Mercy seat and cherubim. So what's going on here? Mercy seat. An instrument for propitiation. An instrument for wrath-bearing. It can be translated an atonement cover, the at-one-ment. How, how do you make those who can't be together come together? There is an atonement cover. There is a place of propitiation or here called the mercy seat. This is the place where once a year the high priest would come in and put blood on the mercy seat to, to make atonement for the people, to make it where they could be at one This is built into the life of the people. And it says God is holy, but God is making a way for this people. Why the cherubim here? These these angels who are spoken of, uh, uh, these angelic figures are spoken of some 100 to almost 100 times in the Bible. But they have a different role than angels you normally think about. These angels aren't God's messengers in the way we normally think about angels. Cherubim are God's protectors. Protectors of God's holiness. We find them protecting the tree of life in Genesis. We find them around the throne of God, protecting God's holiness. In 2 Kings 19.15, there's a prayer to Yahweh, the Lord, the great I Am. And it says, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You see this very language, enthroned between the cherubim. This is the place that represents the very throne of God. And there is the mercy seat so people can come to the throne of God through the sacrifice that's offered, but here only representatively through the mediator, the great high priest. Now, think about it. The blood on the mercy seat, but in the box, in the Ark of the Covenant, there is the testimony of the law. So what's going on here? God is present above. At His feet is the 
box. Blood is put on the mercy seat. It's obviously that it's there because of those who have disobeyed what's in the box, the covenant of God, the law of God, so they can be at one with, once again, this great and glorious God. Now, Hebrews has a lot to say about this. Hebrews 2.17, Jesus came to make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews says that Jesus Himself is the mercy seat. Jesus Himself is the one who fulfills what's in the Ark of the Covenant, the the, the law of God, the, the covenant of God. He Himself and He Himself alone fulfills it. So He is the mercy seat who brings His own blood and He's also the great high priest. He is the one who makes atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9, 4 and 5. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but then it goes on to say in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, the great high priest at this time has to once a year keep coming back. And there's also an altar we're going to see here in a little bit that is as soon as you come in the tabernacle area, you have to come by way of sacrifice. Have you ever thought about how much it's built into the rhythm of the lives of the people who are living in this context? God is holy. God is making a way. And my sin is ever before me. When you and I apply what we learn here to our lives now, here's a mistake we often make. We act as though God is less holy now. We act as though our sin is less bad now than these people's. We pull God down and we lift ourselves up and we end up with this very sort of oftentimes easy Christianity that almost says, may not say it out loud, but of course God loves me. Or maybe it goes the other direction. Maybe since centering the presence of God relentlessly, we don't think about the presence of God and we say, because of what I've done, God can't love me. You see, this whole pattern is to do away with both of those problems. God is present, but He is holy. And God invites a people to come him, to Him through sacrifice through the shedding of blood, through atonement. God isn't relentlessly inviting His people to come to Him. In verses 
Chapter 25, verses 23 through 30, it talks about the table. On the table, there's the bread of presence. Every Sabbath, it would be changed out in between. The priest would eat it, but here it is changed out on the Sabbath. What's going on here? God is present, and the God who gives his people rest is the God who often also feeds his people. Then in chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, there's the lampstand that's always lit. It looks like a tree, hearkening back to the tree of life in the very beginning, the light and life of the world. At least we ought to agree on this. We must approach God on His terms, not ours. Now that sounds foreboding, and actually it's exactly the opposite. It liberates us from self-referential, empty religion. It liberates us from doing all kinds of religious things that we make up and just simply depending on our creativity, and we don't really know if this is the real stuff or not. God says, no, here's how you come to me. Here's what you prioritize. We come to him on his terms, not our own. And finally, the subject shifts to the structure. The tabernacle. And the watchword with the tabernacle itself is simply this. God with us. Verses 1 through 6, we see the tabernacle proper, and there are boards and curtains surrounded by a large courtyard area. It says in verse 1 of chapter 26, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully woven into them. This idea of making sure that we see the cherubim is a big deal. The throne of God, the glory of God. This place is to represent the reality of heaven and heaven come to earth. In the midst of being outside the camp, outside the world, God has staked a place in this world where He is reminding them that He is doing something here. And He is bringing heaven to earth. These colors kind of represent the colors of creation. And God is bringing about a new creation. He's bringing heavenly glory. Verses 7-14 through of chapter 26 is a second layer of curtains. And then in verse 14, we find a layer of tanned ram skins dyed red and goat skins. You see, what, what, is, what is most close is most expensive and delicate. And the farther you go out, you have the protective sort of things like these ram skins. Verse 15 through 25 deals with the the framework. But one of the things we need to know, and it makes clear in verses 16 through following, is that there are really three sorts of uh, compartments within this dwelling. Um, There's a separation between what's called the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And outside of that is the courtyard. And and as you walk in the courtyard, there's the altar of burnt offering. It's the very first thing you see when you walk in. In chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, it explains this to us. And the only way anyone can approach God, the only way anyone can come to worship, the only way anyone can move toward His presence is through sacrifice, through this burnt offering that would be wholly consumed. 
Because whoever comes in is acknowledging I don't come here in my own righteousness. And I'm a sinner. And so again and again and again. So there's the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. And people could go places based on certain criteria, just like we saw on the mountain. There was at the bottom of the mountain. There were those who were allowed midway up the mountain. There were Moses and those who would become priests and the 70 leaders of Israel who were allowed at the top of the mountain. Here the tabernacle complex is, is, is designed like this. Look with me at chapter 26 beginning in verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of the acacia wood overlaid with gold with hooks of gold and on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Do you see all of this detail? God is holy. Also, you notice this, that what starts out farthest away is bronze. The more you go in, there's an emphasis on silver. And when you come into the most holy place, it's gold. See, this tabernacle was to be a taste of heaven on earth. A constant reminder that there is more going on in the world than what those who ignore God see. That God is at work. That God is among His people. That God has made a way to be in relationship with His people. And He's relentless to do so. And He is calling a people out of the world to represent His holy name. See, when you know all this, and then you read Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, you don't think, well, this is just some weird phenomenon when Jesus was crucified. When it tells us at that time, Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why do you think it says that? There's no person in there tearing it in two from bottom to top, from top to bottom. This is what God is doing. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why would the curtain in the temple, the separator between the holy place and the most holy place, why would it be torn down? Because people, in light of what Christ has come to fulfill, the, the, all of the imagery of the tabernacle are invited into His very presence. You see, He is the one all of this pointed to. And we should never say, oh, well, since I have direct access now, God is less holy that is insanity. It should drive us to our knees that God allows me here. What, 
Look at what he taught about how holy he is and perfect. And look, this must be how great Christ is, what it, what it means to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The, the veil is torn in two. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Or as Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Revelation 21 says at the very end, beginning in verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Now notice the access that one has now in new heavens and new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not he'll wipe away the tear of the mediator he was the mediator he was the mercy seat he was the altar he is the high priest he will now wipe away the tears of his people and death shall be no more and there shall be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away why because of christ and he was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new I heard a pastor say one time, and it really stuck with me. I'm trying to get you to have a sense of this. And he said, somebody who lives in a, in a kingdom with a king, and somebody just randomly and goes and wakes the king up at 2 a.m., probably is not going to go well. But there are people who do have access to the king at 2 a.m. It's perfectly fine for the child to come to the king. In fact, the king wants the child to come to him more oftentimes than the child wants to come. You see, this picture of the access that we have in light of Christ is mind-boggling. But we indeed have it. All of these things should help us live today. Is there sovereign providence still at work? <laughs> you better believe it, and that's why there's always hope. Is there holy presence? Yeah. We come to Him on His own terms, but come indeed we do, and He is more ready for us to come than we are willing to come. Is God with us? Yes. His name is Jesus. And all you have to do is turn to Him by faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You so much for this portion of Your Word that is so glorious and so powerful. And Lord, help us to see it for what it is. A glorious invitation that we would give our lives and that we would have courage and boldness and live by faith no matter what we face because of what, who you are and what you've done and how we understand it all in light of Jesus. Oh Lord, may your people respond to your word in a way that glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.